Welcome to the New Health Club podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Emmanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap-making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronner's.de. For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. My guest on the show today is Amanda Elian, and listening to her feels like a flawless lecture on the current state of investment in psychedelics. Amanda is the co-founder of Able Partners, together with Lisa Blau in New York City. Able Partners is an investment fund focused on supporting visionary early stage brands and a positive living space. The New York Times featured Able Partners recently in the article The Capital That Ate Wellness is Going to Eat Your Mushrooms. Venture Capital Arrives for Psychedelics. So Amanda plays an important part in introducing psychedelics to the lifestyle and wellness world. Also, Able Partners are focused on areas that have historical stigma often resulting in underserved markets, meaning that Amanda is investing in companies dealing with mental health or sexual wellness or new ideas of wellness, for example. So far, Able Partners has invested in Moon Juice, Synthesis, Scoop, Atai Life Sciences and Compass Pathways and many more. Amanda and I talk COVID times about a new era of mental health and why there's a problem with our old idea of wellness. Please enjoy Amanda and the episode. We are here with Amanda Elian, um, my favorite investor <laughs> in the psychedelic field, in a new psychedelic world. And Amanda is part of the investor company Able Partners, which is a very interesting early stage investor in also psychedelic endeavors. But of course, there's many more to it. But um, it would be great, of course, as always, the people who are on the show and the new Health Club show, if you maybe introduce yourself, what's important to you in that new psychedelic world we're just entering. I am a co-founder and partner at Able Partners, and we are an early stage venture capital firm. And we're focused on what we call the positive living space. 
So companies making the daily lives of consumers healthier, happier, more meaningful. Um, and initially, my original founding partner, Lisa Blau, and I, and we've more recently been joined by Allison Ryu, who has been a great addition. We, we for over the last decade, had been investing in wellness and probably the first fund to really focus on that. And I think our insight over time was that a lot of this consumer wellness-seeking behavior was actually a result of inadequacies in our own healthcare and societal systems that were underserving certain conditions and consumers. So more recently, we have focused on a concept that we call the wellness gap, which is the disconnect between measures of physical and emotional well-being relative to measures of economic well-being. So in the U.S., you know, GDP per capita continues to increase, while measures of physical and emotional well-being, unfortunately, continue to decrease. And to the point that life expectancy in the U.S. has actually fallen over the last three years, which is incredibly disturbing and unfortunate. But, you know, what is the reason for that disconnect and what types of companies and founders can we support to to address that issue? And we also have another lens of stigma that we like to look at, you know, conditions, communities and, you know, even solutions that have been underserved because of this um, historical cultural stigmas. Mm -hmm. And I mean, th this positive space, how do you think this world is changing? Because obviously there are already articles in the usual um, media like, like Forbes or Fortune, even how mental wellness will be even more affected by the time, by the new time we live in. So is this already something that's triggering new investments or other investments? Well, we have been focused on mental health as one of our areas for several years now. It's probably the area that we focus the most on and is definitely how we initially got involved in psychedelics. Um, I know, I'm sure you, you have all the background and many of your listeners have already heard it, but by the time that Johnson Johnson's Bravado, um, their S-ketamine drug, was approved. It had been 35 years since the FDA in the United States had approved a new antidepressant. And the SSRIs, while, you know, wonderful for many people, there's a large population, not only are they treatment resistant and they don't work for, or people who aren't interested in taking them because of the latency of onset or the, the degree of side effects. So, you know, that's where we first got really interested in psychedelics. What we have seen you know, sort of post-corona world is that, unfortunately, what was already a mental health crisis has gotten even larger. So both our investments and our contacts in the enterprise mental health space, so companies that are selling into employers and the companies that are communicating directly with consumers have all seen a large increase in demand. And I think you've seen a lot of investors suddenly pay even more attention to mental health than they had previously. So, you know, that's unfortunate, but we hope that what that means is that there will be new openness to solutions and more willing on the part of employers to provide those solutions for their employees. How would you describe getting into psychedelics for people who are, would like to invest in it, which actually seems to me are increasing? Yeah, we've definitely seen an increase in interest. So it's really been several years that we've been looking at the space. And I think that one of the opportunities that we saw as Able Partners is somewhat of a non-traditional fund. So traditional investors usually have limited partners who give them the money to invest. And these might be pension funds or, or high net worth individuals or sovereign entities, et cetera, they usually have restrictions on what they can invest in. And they will often have something, a, a sin clause, which won't allow them to invest in a Schedule One drug. We felt at ABLE, given our broader mandate 
and ability to invest in in things that are stigmatized or otherwise would have been covered by a sin clause that we had a unique opportunity to invest in the space before others were able to. What I think has happened uh, since our original investments is that a lot of people saw the value creation in cannabis. And as organizations like MAPS and Rick Doblin and his incredible work get closer to approval and as Compass raises a larger round and gets more attention, you see investors who were not aware of what was going on in psychedelics really interested in it as potentially analogous to what happened in cannabis, which I believe strongly that it is not. And I think most people who are in the space would agree with me there. But it has drawn increasing investor interest because of that. And so what does that look like as an investor? So we are investors in in Compass and in Atai and in Synthesis, uh, companies who are already operating legally in the psychedelic space. And that is you know, really important to us. I have, I have spoken with many companies who see the decriminalization efforts going on in, in Oregon and Denver, and as a result, have maybe gotten ahead of the regulatory structure and been interested in creating companies that would be a direct-to-consumer, be more a recreational route like cannabis took, which, which we don't support right now, and so are not companies that we would be able to invest in. But when we look at the legal investment opportunities, there are the compounds, which would be represented by the Compass and, and the Atais. I think those are the obvious first companies that a lot of people looked at in the space. There's also the physical infrastructure, the distribution piece. So as we we know, these compounds, cannabis is a consumer product. These are consumer services. So they need to be given a psilocybin trip. The active ingredient magic mushrooms could take six to eight hours or more. And so they need to be given in facilities that take into account a very different treatment mechanism than our current drug or other treatments. So the distribution physical infrastructure piece could be medical clinics or in a few legal jurisdictions like Amsterdam could be actually a a retreat, which is not necessarily through the medicalized route. There's also the human infrastructure piece of it, which is that this six to eight hour journey, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, best practices have shown that if you have a facilitator with you, a trained facilitator, one or two, or depending on the the protocol that they're using, you are much more likely to have a beneficial therapeutic outcome. So who is training all these trainers if we're really going to deliver these compounds at scale? So that is another piece of the investment landscape. And a final piece of the investment landscape that I think is pretty interesting is um, possibly what does that tech layer look like and what is the, the IP around those protocols? So a company like Synthesis, which has seen hundreds of people go through their best practices psilocybin experience when they look at screening those people to see who's appropriate for that experience, what do they learn, and how are they able to correlate what somebody uh, says on an application at the front and what their experience is at the end, what does that protocol look like in the middle to optimize your outcome, and equally as important after the experience, what are the activities that they engage in to make sure that any positive change they see is lasting and hopefully increasing. But I mean, in Europe, it feels like the need is, of course, also kind of rising. And then I had this article in Spiegel magazine a couple of weeks ago, um, just describing what I learned, how my trip was at Synthesis. And since then, <laughs> My inbox is kind of, okay, where can I do this? How did you get there? So on. So, so how do you think the this, this situation in Europe is going to be? Because right now it's not really evolving as it is in, in the States, though, I feel. It's interesting because I think that 
in the psychedelic space, many of the for-profit companies actually evolved first in Europe, uh, given some different regulatory structures, Compass, mm-hmm. Atai, and, and Synthesis all being examples. But I'm not sure in terms of the decrim, but certainly Compass with their phase 2B trials has sites, many sites across Europe, which allow, gives people legal access if they qualify for a study, which is a pretty high bar to get into. There mm-hmm. is great work being done by different academic institutions across Europe, I think potentially most notably or most well-known, Imperial College of London, who has their own psychedelic study center, as well as other academic institutions that give some access. And there are some legal jurisdictions. So as we said, um, in Amsterdam, Portugal, I believe, is, is more decriminalized versus is um, legalized, but I think there are some legal options there. It's not something that I've explored particularly, but I think from what I understand, that's what the landscape looks like in Europe. And as as a company, as Compass in particular, brings their psilocybin trials, they are they are working with the regulatory authorities across Europe. So the same the same rescheduling that they're working on in the United States with the FDA, should all the data pan out and should they get approval, is happening at the same time throughout Europe. So that should be a relatively simultaneous. If you let's say if you're a psychedelic startup, what would be important for you to kind of have as a structure to actually tell that startup or organization, okay, I'm interested in getting investors for you or, or venture capital. So, you know, for us to be involved in a psychedelic startup, as I mentioned, you know, we will only invest in things that are working within existing legal and regulatory systems. So they have to be, you know, willing to work within those systems. Um, I think that given the the history and and the weight of that history on these compounds, it's important that whoever's working in the space right now has an authentic connection to the mission and to the work and will hopefully be doing this. Obviously, these are for-profit companies and we're investing for a return, but we'll have some connection to the broader goal that we share of improving mental wellness um, around the world. I think that's important. And then somebody who understands how difficult it is to work within the current regulatory process, and that is not the same as a direct-to-consumer company that I can sell my mushroom coffee over the internet, that this is going to be a, a much more complex process. And so you need sort mm-hmm. of a, you need the right founder to be able to do that. Okay. I mean, how, how did you get in touch with the whole topic? I definitely read Michael Pollan's book. And I think even before that, I had uh, somebody in my life who had gone through a major depressive episode and unfortunately had not been helped by any of the conventional treatments, even though they had been you know, given the best standard of care. And really, as a, a last resort, as I was helping research this, found, finding psychedelics and all the amazing historical data around their usage and and the recent psychedelic renaissance. I became incredibly interested in them as compounds, both for this person, as well as more broadly. It actually took me a little bit. It took me a few months for me to realize that if this is something that it ended up being incredibly helpful for her, and she seems to have fully, I will say, with a lot of work, and it wasn't just the compounds, but seems to have fully recovered after uh, a psilocybin experience. But I realized that this was a huge opportunity as well. I think not everybody is aware, but from 1940 to 1970 in the United States, we had 40,000 clinical research participants and studies on psychedelics. And certainly those studies are not done to today's standards and would not meet today's bar. But that combined with centuries or even millennia of indigenous usage gives you pretty strong confidence that you're going to 
past the sort of the, the phase one hurdle for an FDA drug process, which reduces the risk significantly from an investment perspective. And as we were already looking at mental health as an area that really needed a lot of investment, it just made so much sense that there, here are these compounds that in some ways uh, were de-risk versus any other pharmaceutical development did not have a lot of investor interest at the time. When I went to the Horizons Conference, which is a large psychedelics conference here in New York, several years ago, I'm pretty sure I was, if I wasn't the only investor in the room, I was certainly the only one that I recognized. And look, I, I have also supported this movement philanthropically because I believe it does have the potential to bring a lot of positive change to society. So it's not, not that I just need to wear my investor hat, but I do believe that uh, a sustainable for-profit business model with the right controls and the right people at the helm will ultimately be the, the fastest way to get access at scale to a large number of people in a safe in a safe container. I, I would say that those people like kind of, let's say, who invented these compounds over researching it for like 5,000 years, they, they will be also be able to be involved in making a certain, I don't know, amount of money out of this or just profit from that too. So I think that's something, it seems to me that in the last couple of months, this becomes a, a thought or an idea that it's getting more out there. So. How do you think one should approach this also as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think anybody working in the space has to, and, and it isn't true, unfortunately, of everybody working in the space, but I think they have to approach this with a degree of sensitivity and awareness of how we are here today. So we owe, just the same way that we owe a debt to nonprofits like MAPS and Rick Doblin, we owe an earlier debt to the indigenous communities, which kept these compounds alive and taught a lot of the current establishment the right ways to, to use these compounds and, and the importance of set and setting, as well as, as the best protocols. So I think that going back to our previous conversation about what we look for and how having a, a moral compass and the right ethical underpinnings is important in any company that we invest in. All of the companies that we've invested in the space have different charitable pieces to what they're doing. So all of them take into account. And I think you there's there's certainly the piece of sort of the debt that's owed to the indigenous community. And while they don't, again, they don't own these compounds, they do own the history. There's also, I think some people are perhaps a little more focused on access today and making sure that low-income communities or communities that have worked to keep these drugs alive, maybe pre-psychedelic renaissance are also able to get access um, in a fair way. So I think those are all questions that anybody working in the space today needs to need to be aware of and, and have a point of view on. And I think I'm you know, proud to say that everyone we've worked with does. Because I mean, honestly, I never, probably until a year ago, I never heard of just even read about the fact that mushroom, the compounds with mushroom and, and, and ayahuasca are actually, this, this is where they come from, from often indigenous cultures. But I mean, I thought it was also interesting if you, if you research what Abel also addressed very early on is this expression of the wellness gap. And I think even now with the new situation, it's something that's still kind of very valid to marry this into your strategy as a mental health company. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the wellness gap. Yeah, so, you know, as we said at, at the beginning of this interview, when we originally were focusing on wellness, at the time we understood that 
certain people were being underserved by our healthcare system. And whether that's women and minorities who were historically excluded from large clinical trials, you know, us, us pesky women with our menstrual cycles, which will throw off your data. So it's just yeah. tested on, on a middle-aged white man. Uh, you know, that's obviously one piece of it. And all the way through to things like conditions like endometriosis being denied and disbelieved until the clinical evidence became overwhelming that these issues were not in women's heads. So I think that there is a, a history of marginalizing certain populations in our healthcare system. And wellness, to a certain extent, grew up out of that as a way to take a proactive role in your own health care. And I think that, unfortunately, wellness, some of the way that it's evolved in the U.S. and some of the way that it's been embraced here has become a little bit elitist in, in two ways. In one way, because founders, entrepreneurs saw a an opportunity to create products and services around wellness and often marketing them really at the 1% or the coastal elite or people who would have access to those things. But if I look at what I believe the core of wellness is, it's having a sense of connection and community, whether that be religion or a community group you're involved in or just your close friends and family. That obviously doesn't cost anything. It's, you know, physical activity. I run by the river here in New York every day. It costs me the pair of sneakers. Of course, you can go deeper and say, but I can afford childcare, so I'm able to do that. But I do believe that physical activity is possible for most people. There is the food that we eat, which it can be expensive if you want it to, but eating more fruits and vegetables doesn't have to be. It doesn't always have to be organic. There are ways to improve your your nutrition and uh, contemplative practices, which obviously you can pay for an expensive class. You can pay for accessories, but absolutely unnecessary. So I do think the core of wellness that we may have gotten away from a little bit here in the U.S. is should be accessible to most people. And I think the other thing that that worries me a little bit about how wellness has expanded here in the U.S. is this idea of sort of orthorexia, which is this unhealthy obsession with healthy eating in particular, but I can, I think you can expand that too. Yeah, you can. Uh, And I think that it can become a cover for, I think so many people deal with feelings of inadequacy. And if they turn to wellness as a way that something's wrong with me, let me do these things and make it better. I think that's a really unhealthy representation of wellness. Um, I think if you, you know, I think intermittent fasting is a really interesting concept. I know a lot of people have had a lot of benefit. When I hear somebody like Jack Dorsey say sometimes he only eats two hours a day, I say, you know, we would call that an eating disorder. <laughs> Where so th- those are those are not the parts of wellness that we necessarily want to be associated with. And so when we when we took off sort of that layer of wellness, we we found this underlying issue again, which is that certain people, conditions, communities were being underserved by our healthcare system, and and that resulted in this wellness gap. So our country gets richer. People seem to be having more take-home pay in general. Corona is actually going to change this. I think the wellness gap, maybe everything will be shifted downward. But why are they not living healthier and happier lives as a result? And there's certainly been research done in the past to, you know, once you're above a certain substance level of income, additional income doesn't necessarily bring you, absolute income doesn't necessarily bring more happiness. But how how can we address some of those those disconnects? And why has a suicide rate among women and girls doubled in the last 10 years? And why is our life expectancy in the United States being reduced from primarily these deaths of despair, which are drug overdoses and suicides? And what are the problems that we can address 
in a business model that would actually help people help bridge that wellness gap. And so that's that's really where our focus on mental health came out of and also helped inform that thesis both ways, as well as a lot of the other things that we focus on. Do you think that COVID has normalized um, like a conversation about this in a way? Because everybody kind of has a super big challenge to be on their own, for example, for five months. Yeah, I mean, that would be an amazing silver lining to COVID. I think that... I think that some of that is true. I, because we have been focused on mental health investment for many years now, I think that I have had those conversations with people. I will often say that within, usually within the first meeting, but for some people, maybe the second time we're meeting them, people will come, will open up about their own mental health story or somebody within a very close yeah. first degree of them. And it's just so, I, I was, I was surprised at the beginning how prevalent it was. And it's clear that These mental health issues, the statistics don't lie. You know, something like one in five U.S. adults has a diagnosable anxiety, depression, or other mental health disorder. And, you know, there's a spectrum of, of severity. And, and I think that we can even debate how much of that maybe is within the normal range of human emotions. But I think that COVID for sure has sh shown a light on that. And I think even just the willingness that we see in our portfolio for individuals and, and businesses to say that they're looking for help is representative of that. I think that there's been some mixed data coming out about the mental health impact. And I think that one message that I'm hopeful about is that human beings were more resilient than you think. I, w I was working in the World Financial Center when you'd attached to the Twin Towers when the planes hit and oh. you know, that felt like the end oh. of the world. And there certainly was a huge mental health impact, but people ultimately, most of them, it's a, a small minority who don't, who end up having sort of a lingering trauma from something like that. Uh, although that was obviously very traumatic. Uh, but I think that even just talking to people over video, and so I've heard this from many people who experience some sort of social anxiety or if their children have social anxiety, having school over video right. yeah. is in a way easier, right? It's a lower barrier. You're not in somebody's physical space. So I, I wonder if that's also why people are more willing to discuss these things. So do you think that Uh, for example, somebody like Kevin O'Leary, who's famous in, in America for being on a shark tank, if somebody like him invests in, in a really big company, do you think this has like, a, like an impact on how, let's say, a broader audience suddenly react to this if they see him, him on CNN or like wherever saying like, dude, I invested in this. So do you think this does something to the, let's say, like a public opinion or is it still kind of just like this one dude being interested in this? I mean, I think any dude with his public profile makes a difference. You know, we talked about Michael yeah. Pollan's book. I think there's a group of us who are huge, myself included here, huge Michael Pollan fans. And that, that definitely made an impression on me personally. And I think a lot of people who I've talked to in the space, but you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people in the space reacted with skepticism to Kevin O'Leary's involvement. And mm -hmm. I will admit that initially I was one of those. It felt very promotional. I have not personally loved the promotional turn that so many of these new companies in the space have taken. I mean, it's amazing the difference a year makes from a year ago when, you know, we couldn't find any other companies in the space to what's happening today, specifically, I think, in Canada and, and some of the activity around there. Um, I, I have met JR. I do actually think he has some integrity. I think that what he would say, which resonates somewhat to me, is that a Michael Pollan maybe resonates with, with you and I, and we I'd read his omnivore's dilemma, and I was already on board with whatever he wanted to sell me next. But there's a yeah. large group of Americans or, or people around the world who are not his demographic, but maybe they watch Shark Tank 
Frank and maybe they know Kevin O'Leary. And those are the people that I'm actually most interested, you know, when I talk about going through an FDA process and why that's so important is because I think those are the people that one of the benefits of it, of the many benefits is that those are the people who maybe would not at all have considered these things before and would once it goes through a process like that, or maybe start thinking about it when they hear from somebody like Kevin O'Leary. Um, I had a good friend's mother who unfortunately passed away somewhat recently from cancer. And, you know, she had a, a, a terrible existential, you know, end of life anxiety. We know from the Johns Hopkins and NYU studies that something like psilocybin can be incredibly helpful in actually curing that um, with just a single session. But she would have never, never considered it because it wasn't at, at her level of awareness. And I think I guess if I were to look at the positive side of something like that and, and not take the pessimist view, I'd say, hopefully, if they're taking the right actions and not being promotional, there there could be a net positive. But of course, I do worry that people are selling these compounds as panaceas and we haven't done the right research and these aren't like a quick flip stock pick. I mean, when we when we invest in the space, we made a very deliberate decision that this is a 20 year view. You know, so several years ago now, maybe we were maybe it was too long of a view. Maybe it'll happen sooner. But I think that we ha you had to take that view, which is like we're in it for the long haul. There's more that we don't know than we do know. We are open to being wrong and we want to stay with these companies in the space as long as it takes to get it right. Okay. But I mean, then again, the Goop show was very influential too. <laughs> and I mean, I had talked to so many people when I came back from synthesis and they were like, oh, is, is this what you did like that Gwyneth Paltrow's friend did on the Goop show? <laughs> Elise Lennon, of course, who we, we fortunately, thanks to you, had on the podcast too. So I mean, and I think it's interesting how kind of popular culture, let's call it that way, can actually contribute to a better understanding, which is my personal shtick actually, to how popular culture can actually make this storytelling different. I mean, and they, I think they did an amazing job with that episode because it wasn't like, whoa, we're going on this fun trip and let's see what's coming out. So it was very interesting how they talked about like how to choose the their coworkers, how, who would go on the trip. And then nobody was just like, you know, super funny, like uh, having this typical mushroom giggle, so just a few. <laughs> But I mean, I thought it was a very interesting new format of telling a modern healing story also. So how do you important do you think that is to have like a, a new storytelling culture around that that's media or movies or I don't know, anything that's kind of related to it these days? How do you think how important is that at the moment? Yes, I think that, as you alluded to previously, the stories told about these compounds in the past were of a certain type, and they would alienate a lot of people, including me. I certainly had no personal, a lot of people come to the space because of their own personal experience. My personal experience was really, you know, working with this friend who had the, the major depressive disorder, not from actually any experience I had had with the compounds. So I think that if you're going to, again, bring these these compounds, hopefully that they live up to their potential to scale and get people using them at scale, you're going to have to change the storytelling. And I think Goop is one piece of that, and there'll be a group of people who that's not going to resonate with them and could be a negative. You could say the same thing about Kevin O'Leary. You could probably, maybe you'll even say the same thing about Michael Pollan. But if you get enough of these smart, considered decision makers as part of the conversation and, and whatever 
whatever people want to say about Goop, you can't say that they don't do their research, right? When you have enough people like that talking about their experiences, and it goes back to our conversation about being willing to admit to any mental health issues you might have or any um, any issues that you want to work through. Well, I mean, I have to say one of the strongest moments was when John Lubecki, the um, ex-soldier Iraq kind of veteran, just said he tried to kill himself five times and it didn't work out. And then he found maps. I mean, how, I sometimes think, how much more do you need to understand that this seems to work? But I mean, I thought it's also so great. And I have to say it in this moment that Goop puts somebody like him in that show. And um, I mean, I'm personally, as we know, I'm a big fan of Goop. And I'm admitted, I'm proud to say it. But I think I keep thinking about this show so many times because it's such an interesting combination of these kind of of the really difficult things to talk about maybe mixed with a wow we could all go there as friends to Jamaica one day and do a mushroom trip together so but I mean how do you think oh let's say what is your personal favorite picture for the next couple of years in, in the psychedelic space what would you like to see as an investor you know I would like to Obviously, the I think MAPS is, is first in line with MDMA, which is clearly not a classical psychedelic, but I think that the work they've done there is going to really be important and inform what happens next. So hopefully, it seems like everything that we're hearing from MAPS is that their their trials are are showing an incredible response. So hopefully that that is continues to, to play out and is approved and people our veterans and other people suffering from PTSD are able to access these compounds and hopefully our healthcare system, and I speak more in the United States, I think it's a little bit different in Europe and especially in places like the UK where you have a, a national healthcare system, the way they look at reimbursement and the way they look at administration is different. But certainly in the United States, I think that some of the work with after rescheduling MDMA will be around reimbursement from payers, will be around distribution, as we've talked about, will be around training therapists and making sure that people understand that you're not you're not administering MDMA. And this is not like taking ecstasy at a party. There's a reason that it, it hasn't been shown to be as therapeutic in that setting, that it needs to be paired with the therapy in the right way and the way that they did the MAPS trials. So my hope is that that sets a new paradigm for what mental health treatment can look like and that other compounds in the psychedelic space that are, are approved after that are able to benefit from that experience and expand the scope of mental health treatment in the United States. So, you know, that would be that would be my hope. That my hope is that the rigorous data and studies that MAPS and Compass are doing right now and, and others soon to follow probably will change the mind of I think regulators have been very cooperative, so I don't want to say change the minds, but have people more open to a new way of, of treating some of these, unfortunately, intransigent and all-too-common disorders. Well, that sounds like a, the perfect future. <laughs> Let's hope it happens. <laughs> but thank you so much. That was really interesting. Also, I mean, everything that happened in the last month is probably kind of making this whole topic even more relevant, I feel. And I'm so happy you, you took the time to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Have a good day in New York. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you soon. It was great talking to you. Mm -hmm.